The Water Values Podcast, Session 97. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGinsey and thanks for joining me. Uh, fantastic show for you today. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, really quickly, I just want to say thanks so much for all the great reviews and the ratings, uh, especially for uh, BPAL2's A Great Resource Review on iTunes, five stars. Uh, same with Greg Taggart, five stars uh, with a Best Water Podcast Out There review and aj milky with the great show review thank you so much guys really appreciate those itunes reviews and adam w thank you very much for the fantastic review on stitcher a five-star rating and a a great paragraph uh with you know singing the praises of the water values podcast i really appreciate it guys thank you so much uh for the ratings and reviews on to the show this is a fantastic show we've got another session of Bluefield on tap for you, and uh, Reese Tisdale is going to give you a little knowledge on uh, the current state of the water market as it pertains to energy. Uh, then we have Jason Euler, the general counsel of the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, who gives a fantastic interview. Uh, wait, wait till you hear that. Even if you think you know a lot about fracking and water use, wait till you hear this interview because he just he just nails it. Um, so with that said. It's a long show, um, I, with, just with the great content that Reese and Jason were providing, I, I just felt I, need, I didn't want to cut any more than I already did, so uh, let's get on with it. Let's, let's hit our Bluefield on Tap segment, so here it is. Well, Reese, welcome back for round two of Bluefield on Tap. Thanks for coming along again. That's uh, my pleasure. <laughs> uh, today's uh, podcast interview is with Jason Euler. Uh, the general counsel for the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, and we're going to talk about uh, water and its relation to uh, energy development, or rather, vice versa, energy development and its relation to water. Uh, so, so let's kind of delve into that. That's where I'd like to go with this. Uh, can you tell us a little uh, about how the uh, the energy sector is approaching water right now? I think in this case, looking at energy, and particularly uh, upstream oil and gas, you know, water. Is a key component to to the industry itself. Uh, if you look at it, you know hydraulic fracturing, which has been in the news, I guess, really over the past five to ten years now. Each well is using anywhere, you know, it's using several million gallons, two to five million gallons of water uh, per frac that has to be supplied to the well, but it also has to be transported out because there's produced water that comes out of, of the well and needs to be either disposed of or treated and reused. There are different ways to uh, to address it. But exactly, it is a key component. And it's something that varies across the U.S. Because when you look at upstream oil and gas, the industry itself is not monolithic. It's not a one solution meets all. You've got Texas where they've historically had drought. You've got the Marcellus which is in Pennsylvania, Ohio, where water is more abundant, but then you worry about disposal uh, and where to put the, uh, put the produced water. So 
I, I think that's a better way to look at it when looking at everything from cost returns and solutions to the market. Well, Reese, can you let's expand on that? Let's let's go down the road of how has the industry's approach uh, to water kind of changed um, in in light of of kind of low oil and gas prices. I think what you would see, so it's in, like any industry, you know, to put in context, several years ago, oil prices were one hundred and twelve dollars a barrel. Uh, they've since then fallen to into the low 30s. So what's ended up happening is the industry has had to step back. I mean, it's been, quite honestly, a bit of a bloodbath. To put it, to give you an idea, since the start of 2016, I believe, there have been about 114, 115 bankruptcies in the energy sector that are largely a reflection of oil prices. So... But prior to that downturn, what was happening is it was Katie bar the door, let's drill as much as we can, let's just get the water in, let's produce oil, let's produce gas. What's happened since then is the sector has had to become more focused on on cost, essentially, and getting the most, if, if they could operate, in, in a, if they could operate at all. So I think the key, though, is back to my comment about uh, the differentiation between the regions, what's ended up happening is, to put it in perspective, Texas is really, there's a wealth, there are 10,000 saltwater disposal wells where the produced water from these wells can be dumped and disposed of and never to be seen again. In Pennsylvania, that's really not the case. So it's the cost of disposal in Pennsylvania, the Utica, uh, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, is much higher. When you're looking at 7 to $15 a barrel for disposal, because a lot of that water has to be trucked. It either has to be trucked to Ohio, it has to be trucked to a central disposal facility where it can be treated and or disposed of or reused. In Texas, if you have a number of disposal wells, I mean, the ubiquity of them is immense, you're looking at several dollars for disposal. It's pretty easy. You're not dealing with the topography. You're not dealing with the, um, the difficulty of, of transporting that water, both supply and disposal. So I think that is really and what we've seen in Pennsylvania. Historically, part of this is regulatory driven, but also it's just the landscape of the market physical itself is that reuse rates for produced water in Pennsylvania are much higher. I mean, you're looking at 70 plus percent to 80 percent uh, in that region, whereas in the in Texas, what you're starting, what we've historically seen is two to five percent, or the Bakken in the Dakotas, two hmm. to five percent. So, the huge difference between the regions uh, and oil and gas. But we, st- with you know, drought at one point was starting to change that. There was a greater focus in Texas because of drought several years ago that regulators were getting, you know, regulators and the public were increasingly getting concerned about the availability of water. But what we've seen also in the Permian Pioneer uh, uh, Oil and Exploration Company, one thing that they have done is they've signed contracts actually with municipal wastewater facilities to offtake wastewater to use in their operations, which is their long-term contracts, but are an indication that they're thinking longer term and they're looking to 
be more efficient in their water use. Yeah, let's dig into that real quickly. Um, how much of it is cost cutting and what's the ROI on their, their water efficiency, water conservation measures, and how much of it is, is just kind of like you were saying, is it public license to operate or the perception that they're using too much water? I think it's a little bit of both. And I think that the, I can't speak to exactly what the ROI is because like, it does does vary uh, company by company. But I think the, you know, when you're able to, you know, reduce water usage by, you know, 10, 20%, let's say, and you can also reclaim that water, you are shaving off costs that you weren't concerned about at $112 a barrel. When it's $50 a barrel, you're basically saving margins and the technology and the solutions are there. Um, as far as public pressure, I think that's part of it. And, you know, I think the other thing is, which continues to bubble up is what we've seen in places like Oklahoma, we've seen it in Ohio, and to some extent in Texas, and that is seismic activity. The fracking is not what's causing the seismic activity in these places. What's causing seismic activity is the disposal, putting the water down these disposal wells. I mean, there's immense volumes of water that, uh, that are creating a lot of these problems. Reese, thanks so much for coming on and sharing a little knowledge about uh, water use in the energy industry today. No, it's my pleasure, and I look forward to tracking this. As, as the market has stabilized, quite honestly, a lot more companies are interested or once again interested in, in the sector uh, for growth, uh, for water treatment and management. So awesome. I look forward to it. Cool. All right. Thanks, Reese. We'll talk to you next time. As always, Reese Tisdale giving a fantastic uh, – snapshot of the market at this time in in the water sector uh, as it pertains to energy uh, so you know very topical stuff especially with a fantastic interview you're going to hear right here with jason oiler well jason welcome to the water values podcast thanks thanks so much for coming on uh to, for starters how about telling us a little about your background and how you got interested in water Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what are you doing now? Uh, well, I work for the Susquehanna River Basin Commission. I'm their general counsel. This agency is a, it's an interstate compact agency, uh, and it is focused mostly on water quantity issues uh, as opposed to water quality issues, which, which reside mostly with regulation through EPA and the state DEP. Okay, so let's, let's back up just a sec. Susquehanna, uh, the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, what are its jurisdictional limits? What are the geographic boundaries? What area of the country are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking uh, the east coast of the Atlantic. Uh, the Susquehanna River is the uh, largest source of fresh water for the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. It is uh, the jurisdictional limits trace the limits of the river basin. So we start in, uh, in the southern tier of New York, 
uh, down through Pennsylvania and into Maryland where it uh, meets the Chesapeake Bay. So our jurisdiction covers three states, um, and you know, not all the states, obviously just the, those parts in the Susquehanna River Basin. For the Pennsylvania part of the river basin, uh, the Susquehanna makes up about 45% of Pennsylvania's land area, so it's, it's a large uh, portion, smaller of the other states, obviously. Now, you, you mentioned it's an interstate compact agency. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with that, can you just kind of give us a thumbnail about what an interstate compact agency is? Sure, absolutely, and you kind of have to love administration. <laughs> Okay, and so in terms of, you mentioned it was a water quantity agency versus a water quality agency. Uh, so, so within that, within the Susquehanna River Basin, um, the the commission essentially has authority over who gets to use the water. I mean, how how do, what exactly is is the, uh, the the mission or the the duty of the commission? And they set a limit of 
jurisdictional limit of 20,000 gallons a day over 30 day average. So any entity in the basin that uses what would be basically, if you think about it, 600,000 gallons of water in a month needs to get review and approval by our agency. In 1978, they added the regulation of groundwater sources and surface water sources in 1995, and those have a trigger of 100,000 gallons a day over 30 day average. So anybody that withdraws water from ground or surface water sources over 3 million gallons in what would be roughly a month time frame. Got it. So we're not talking about homeowners just sinking a well for drinking water in their backyard. We were talking about big, bigger projects. It, it's got to be big projects. And that was the, the, when the commission looked at it, setting a jurisdictional limit, you know, because the idea is it has to be a level of water use where you would start to have concerns that it could impact basically the, the main concern and the, one of the main concerns of the compact is the, the flow of fresh water to the Chesapeake Bay. Got it. Got it. Uh, so let's talk about energy development because because the area you're talking about, uh, the geographical area, it sits within one of the major uh, fracking areas that has developed over the last uh, several years. And so from from my perspective, fracking came on very quickly. Um, and, and so could you talk a little about how the uh, commission has dealt with kind of water, consumptive water use or water use um, for energy development from a historical basis and how that kind of changed once once uh, hydraulic fracking came along? Sure. I mean, from a historical basin, basis in our, in our commission jurisdictional area, uh, it wasn't, you know, prior to 2008, what, what, what would be called before then would be your conventional drilling. So you put a vertical well down, not extremely deep, and they may or may not have actually used water to fracture it, um, but it, the, the amounts that you would use or talking about for just a vertical shallow well would, you know, not raise a level of concern, obviously, that, uh, you know, the fracking from what we call the unconventional drilling does. Um, and most of that conventional drilling, frankly, took place in, you know, in Pennsylvania, in the western part of the state, in the Ohio River Basin. There wasn't a lot uh, in the Susquehanna River Basin and what what was, they didn't use water at a level that would have triggered that 20,000 gallons a day over 30 day average jurisdictional threshold. So I would say before 2008, the commission really had zero energy projects before it other than elect, you know, what you might consider electrical generation or nuclear. So you're, uh, yeah, so essentially you're talking wet cooling for thermoelectric power plants. Correct. Yeah, okay. would agree with you at, uh, you know, I, and, and I know, I mean, this it, fracking has been around for decades, but it's combining fracking with the new technology of horizontal drilling. So an unconventional well, and Marcellus is, you know, a, you know, a fair bit, a mile more down, uh, you drill your vertical well, and then you, you know, they turn the wellhead and then they can drill out horizontally. And if you think of it sort of like, a, you know, tendrils are coming out uh, and following the, the shale clay that way. And then that uses a tremendous amount of water uh, because you put it down, create the pressure and for that, that horizontal, that horizontal line. Uh, so that came in and, and there were a lot of unknowns. Um, you know, Pennsylvania, other than, you know, some conventional uh, gas drilling 
wasn't really known as an energy producing state. Uh, we weren't Texas, we weren't Oklahoma. Uh, and you know, there wasn't a ton of regulatory experience from the regulatory agencies on that. And so we felt we had to play catch up rather quickly. Yeah. Starting in 2008. Yeah. So how did you go about doing that? I mean, cause, cause when I think of government regulation and administrative law, there's a long process to, you know, get rules in place and, and establish, um, the framework for how you're going to, how, how you're going to regulate something. So uh, how did the commission go about doing that? Well, and this is one area we're actually having a, a compact commission, a compact agency uh, was helpful to move quickly uh, because while our membership were made up of the, our member states, Pennsylvania, New York, and, and Maryland, and the federal government, and while because Congress has approved the compact, we are considered quote unquote federal law, but we're not considered a federal agency. So we do not, we're not covered by the normal, uh, you know, in fact, the compact reservations even say we're not covered by the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, so the normal federal apparatus for rulemaking doesn't apply to us. And because we're not a member of any single member jurisdiction, neither does their uh, apparatus apply to us. So we have a board of commissioners that meets every quarter. Uh, they can propose rulemaking, and then we have final rulemaking. So we generally follow the procedures for notice and comment rulemaking under the APA, but we don't have to go through the Office of Management and Budget and you know the, the myriad other gauntlet of approvals that a, a, a strictly federal agency would have to go through. So uh, we could get regulations as quickly out, uh, you know, having a public comment period and, you know, as we can develop them within you know, uh, three to six months, which is a very advantageous thing when, when you see that you need to suddenly start regulating something that, that you know, was viewed by many a time to be a game changer. And there was a, much, there was a lot of public concern uh, about this new industry. And there was a lot of, you know, obviously the new industry itself was gearing up and ready to go and, and, and advocating for their own interests. So a lot was happening very quickly. The first thing the commission did in 2008 was pass a new regulation and said, these jurisdictional thresholds we're throwing out the window and we're gonna start regulating unconventional natural gas at gallon one. And the rationale behind it was we weren't sure when, you know, at, we knew when they fracked, um, they would jump over our threshold. Uh, but you know, for them to have the lead time to get a review and approval, well, it wasn't always clear when their schedule was of when they would cross that threshold. So we said, just out of the gate, uh, from gallon one, you have to you have to you have to get an approval from us, and the, those rules were put into place, and it it helped, I think, uh, add a process to this that was uncertain for both the public and for the regulated community because they weren't sure until they when they were exactly going to cross our threshold and subject themselves to regulation. What type of you know regulations were put in place? And uh, well, uh, for our consumptive use approvals, uh, in a lot of ways, are largely uh, administrative in that you really wanting them to demonstrate um, how much water you're using, properly meter and account for it, and then follow that sort of metering plan so you know what they're using. Uh, on the consumptive use side, we also like them to, to mitigate for the consumptive use. Uh, the commission uh, projects can either find their own mitigation water or they can pay a consumptive use mitigation fee to the commission that allows us to then basically pull money from several projects to develop large um, water um, uh, reservoir, basically, you know, um, 
sources that can be released when we enter low flow conditions. And the idea behind our consumptive use regulations is we're not trying to undo the natural cycle of you know drought and, and low flow, but what we're trying to do is replace the water that's used during those low flow periods so that the consumptive use of water in the basin doesn't make a drought condition worse. So the water that's coming out is, is replaced by water we have in storage. Yeah, perfect. That makes perfect sense. Um, how, what, what about the location of these uh, unconventional drilling sites? You know, are they, are they posing any challenges or, or, or problems for the commission? and say, oh, gosh, they're using a lot of water. And, you know, I think with the commission, because we're accounting for it, I mean, we have a pretty good handle on their usage. And since 2008 till, till now, I think they've used about 18 billion gallons of water. And before I started this job, you would have said to me, 18 billion gallons, I would have been like, wow, that, that's a lot. It's, it's you know, we're, we're in trouble. And then I real, you know, and then you look at the other projects. So, you know, that's basically the, and so that for over a 10 year period, the natural gas industry as a whole has used 18 billion gallons or roughly the equivalent of what one nuclear power plant uses in one year. And we have three nuclear power plants in the basin. So it's, it's not, the, the major concern is not necessarily the quantity of water that they're wanting to use. It's where they want to use it and where they're getting it from. And and I, a nuclear power plant is a great example. If you're building a nuclear power plant, you say to yourself, all right, I want to be somewhere close to major power lines so I don't have to develop a lot of new line. But other than that, for siting, what do you need? You need all our nuclear power plants are on the main stem of the Susquehanna that has the largest water flow and then plenty of water to pull from for you know their usage. Natural gas uh, drillers, they don't get to choose exactly where their location is. They have to go where the gas is. And in our basin, that's largely in lesser developed uh, headwater settings that don't have a, a tremendous amount of, you know, it, they're not by a main stem waterway uh, to pull a lot of water. So the, the amount of water that they need to fracture a well uh, can be anywhere from 4 million to I've seen figures of maybe up to 9 million gallons per well. Um, Pulling that from a higher order stream is not necessarily a concern. Pulling it from a headwater is a major concern because it could uh, be a tremendous percentage of the flow of those streams. So where they were located was a big was a big deal because they're locating them in areas that haven't had a lot of development. It's uh, more in the northern tier of our basin, whereas most of the water resource projects, the the, the entities, most of the population of the basin and the and the intensive water use is in the lower half of the basin. Uh, so say in the southern part of Pennsylvania and in Maryland, as opposed to the northern tier of Pennsylvania. So how did that, how did the the location where there are challenges with low flow, you know, because we talked about low flow earlier and the mitigation, um, what kind of, what, what do the low flow uh, regulations kind of look like? Sure, and when I talked about the mitigation that was for the consumptive use, um, uh, the withdrawal, of water, uh, and there are uh, between two and 300, uh, I believe, approvals for withdrawals uh, for natural gas. Um, and so 
you have to tell us where you're withdrawing the water from. They typically focus on surface water withdrawals. Uh, so in 2012, the commission realized that there's gonna be this pressure where they're gonna have these withdrawals and developed a, uh, well, they were, I should say, they were in the process of developing a new low flow protection policy. The emergency natural gas industry, I think just added another good reason why those that policy needed to be further developed and overhauled. So now to get a, um, to get an approval to withdraw, uh, we look at a whole bunch of factors, including the cumulative water use on the stream you're pulling from upstream and downstream. Uh, and if, uh, and if the cumulative impact of those withdrawals reaches a certain point, we'll institute what's called a pass by flow, which is simply a, a, an amount of water that you need to let pass by that's needed for uh, other users downstream and for ecological reasons, uh, you know, for the, you know, the fish and the aquatic life. So um, it would get, it, and you look at it monthly. So you look at real flow statistics. So we have uh, an amazing amount of information, mostly from the USGS monitoring locations um, to figure out what, how much flow is going by and when, when they need to shut off as a, as a percentage of that flow. And they could have month by month restrictions uh, depending on the amount of the water they're use, using. So, you know, in higher flow times, like in the spring, they can siphon off a great deal of water uh, and put it into storage. Uh, during the low flow months, particularly August and September, they may be on pass by and unable to withdraw for, you know, large portions of those months depending on the actual flow. So in dry years, they may be on pass by more often. It's all keyed on the level of flow. On wet years, they may not be on pass by as much. Uh, so it, it is also dependent on the climactic conditions. So when there's rain, uh, there's more flow and more ability to withdraw water. And when there's not, they're, they're shut down for most of the time. One of the other concerns folks have with fracking is, is water quality. Um, what has the commission done? I, and I understanding that you at the beginning kind of said, Hey, we're, we're primarily water quantity. We ha we get into water quality a little bit, but uh, do you regulate the water quality uh, for the fracking or for the unconventional gas drillers? Uh, no, that is squarely regulated by, uh, by the state and by okay. the member jurisdictions. And, and so they have the rules in place of, uh, because it's a, it's a residual waste and, you know, there's federal and state laws in place for residual waste, uh, you know, handling. Uh, and early on, there was at the state level, um, you know, a lot of concern about where they were, you know, so, some, there was an early use in 2008 and 2009 of uh, projects just putting it through publicly owned treatment works. Well, they weren't designed to remove a lot of the stuff that comes out of that. And that practice was quickly ended by, you know, joint efforts through EPA and the U.S. and the uh, PADEP. Um, so what we saw now is, you know, I would say in the early part, most all companies now are recycling uh, that flowback water uh, through uh, typically a reverse osmosis process. And so, it, you know, the water that's coming through that process, it, it is a more expensive treatment technology. But, you know, in, in 2008, I could tell you there were zero what we would call zero liquid discharge facilities in Pennsylvania. And now there are at least nine that I know of. Uh, so that the, you know, the technology has sprung up and, and folks and the, and the need for it has sprung up that it's worth people like investing in creating these technologies. 
So a lot of the, what comes back, and we we know from what the information we collect, because uh, they have to do a post-hydrotractor report with us, about 10% of the water they put down comes back within the next 30 days. Uh, they're recycling almost 100% of that. So anytime wow. now that they do a new frack, uh, you know, whereas in 2008, 2009, 2010, 100% of the water they put down the hole was fresh water, meaning water they withdrew that was, you know, from streams or other sources. Uh, now today they're recycling nearly 100% of their flow back, but remember not all the very little flows back right away. So, you know, there is a need to make up the difference with fresh water, but now maybe 80% of what they use is fresh water and the rest is made up of their recycled flow back. For, so from a quality perspective, I think that's a good thing because they're taking this water coming up, they're reusing it and reusing it and reusing it and putting it back down. So they're using less fresh water. Uh, but even with that practice, there's there's still a need to use quite a bit of fresh water for this. On the other end of the quality, specifically what we heard in a lot of, um, you know, a lot of environmental organizations and, and public raised a concern, and, and it's a fair one, especially, you know, when you're at, a, at an agency, you, you have a project come to you and tell you what they want to do, and you are bound to look at sort of that project as it's presented to you. Um, you know, like I said, for our withdrawals, we have a, a fairly good process where we actually incorporate cumulative impacts of other withdrawals. Um, and that, I think the, the concern was, well, what if there's a cumulative impact to all this, this use and the fracking and that's not being captured on an on a individual project review basis? Uh, the commission said, you know, let's, let's gather data. And so in 2010, they, they got the funding to put out a remote water quality monitoring network. And they deployed 53 water quality uh, sensing stations uh, throughout the basin. And if you think of these things, as they, they look sort of like a, a, like a giant uh, you know, cylindrical tube, uh, but they have sensing equipment and, they, they're, and they're tied and we have them tied to a network where they report real-time data to us uh, over these locations. Uh, they report conductance, temperature, DO, pH, turbidity, and depth uh, on a continuous basis. And then four to six times a year, we send a person out to take uh, samples at each of those locations, and then we do a, a broader look for a whole sweep of parameters, um, you know, including things you would expect to find if there were um, uh, hydrofracking, uh, you know, uh, waste or byproduct in the streams, including, you know, radium, barium, strontium and other radiologicals, in addition to, you know, your uh, normal run of metals and other things that you look for. So we've been doing that now since 2010. I've gotten a, a great deal of data. Um, and from, you know, our, you know, it's an ongoing evaluation. But so far, other than I would say some increase in turbidity that really could be traced back to uh, improving um, erosion control practices for road building, uh, we have not seen a, a large-scale uh, impact on water quality. In, in terms of the data, is is that just reviewed by you guys? What other agencies are getting that data? Is, who's all using the data? Uh, you know what? A anybody that's interested has been. Uh, once you, Because it is, it is a very unique thing for a river basin to have a real-time water quality monitoring network. I'm not aware of... Uh, anywhere else in the country where this has been deployed in, in the scale that we've deployed it. Um, and the data we get back has been very useful for the commission's purposes. So we're constantly looking at the data in, in, in ways both to 
inform how we can better review these projects, um, but also, you know, uh, the data has been requested by our member jurisdictions. It's been, the data has been uh, requested by DEP and was a large part of the hydrofracking study uh, that, they, that they did a few years back. Uh, it's been requested by academics and uh, other institutions um, of learning to, you know, so lots of people have been asking for this data because we're one of the few people that's been collecting it. Um, and certainly collecting on the scale. I can tell from the, tell you from the commission's perspective, we've been extremely happy with this monitoring network to the point where in the past year and a half, we've we've sort of reconfigured the deployment to because the, the initially the deployment was in the upper part of the basin because we really wanted to get a handle on effects of the burgeoning gas industry. Uh, and now we're redeploying it to basically cover the whole basin because we see such a, a, a unique uh, scientific value uh, to what it, what we're collecting. Amen to that. I, I, water is one of those uh, areas where there just isn't sufficient data. So I'm I'm very happy that you're uh, that you're collecting that data. Uh, let's talk about some other issues that could possibly affect uh, water vis-a-vis uh, energy development, and that would be you know the, these these uh, unconventional drillers are getting the getting the gas out of the ground. Um, there's got to be pipelines to get that gas to to market essentially. So how 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 do you know gas pipelines affect water vis-a-vis these unconventional gas drillers? Uh, sure. I mean, I, the, when you think of pipelines, uh, there's you know two sort of areas. One is that what we'll call the gathering lines, and these are the, these are just the lines that sort of connect individual pads that eventually get them to. Um, the pipelines that we'll call the interstate pipelines to sort of move the gas to where it's ultimately going to be used and, and to go. Um, there, there's been a number of con- environmental concerns raised about pipelines that have a lot to do with, um, you know, uh, have habitat fragmentation, um, erosion and sediment problems, and those things. From a water quantity perspective, pipelines are not... You know, they, they use water for hydrostatic testing, but that water isn't consumptively used. It's usually just, you know, it's pressurized. The water is put through the pipe to make sure there are no leaks, and then it's discharged back into the waterways. Um, so it doesn't use a lot. It doesn't consumptively use a lot of water. Where they do consumptively use a lot of water is where they do horizontal directional drilling, and that's where they, they make cross highways, uh, residential neighborhoods, uh, streams, uh, by basically going down and horizontally drilling uh, underneath. Uh, and that is, you know, if you have your choice of how you're going to put in a pipeline, environmentally you want them to use the horizontal directional drilling because you don't have to do open cuts through water, which is very, you know, has a lot of risk for a lot of settlement pollution and disruptive to fish and aquatic life uh, rather than just go under. But it does use water consumptively, you know, because they have to create like this drilling mud. Um, so, but on the grand scale, it's not, it's not a lot of water to, you know, even less water that's used, you know, in, in other areas. So the water use, the water quantity issues for pipelines, I think are really not the major, and we've had a couple of them come through in, in approval for our commission, the Manorees pipeline, Atlantic Sunrise pipeline, Constitution pipeline. They've not generated a lot of the controversy that a lot of the, you know, the gas drilling did in, in the early part for us. They've been hugely controversial for FERC 
and for the states with the 401 water quality certification and subject to a lot of litigation. Because I think that's where it's the, those environmental issues presented by pipelines that those agencies cover are the ones that people were extremely concerned about. The water use out of pipelines isn't, isn't anything in the grand scheme that, that uh, folks have had a lot of concern about. Got it, got it. Uh, and then I guess my, the, the, the other outflow question I would have from the location of the unconventional gas willing gas drilling uh, wells is, has it impacted the siting of thermoelectric generation at all? slides and one that shows the major uh, thermoelectric plants in the basin uh, prior to 2013 um, you know and by major I'll talk to you over 100 megawatts um, you know and they're they're all on main stem or larger order streams so either on the main stem of Susquehanna itself or larger tributaries like the West Branch or uh, and so forth um, and they were all basically located in just where the population of the basin mostly is. And so in sort of like the, you know, southern Pennsylvania counties uh, around Lancaster, York, and Harrisburg. Um, now, if you look at major uh, power plants uh, over 100 megawatts post-2013, all the new development is in the northern tier of Pennsylvania. And basically they're building, these are all, they're all natural gas-fired power plants. Uh, so they're going to where the gas supply is. Uh, that poses some problems because they're locating themselves away from these main stem waters where uh, it, it, the water isn't there for wet cooling. And so the commission a couple years ago passed a resolution and using what regulatory levers we had in place to really encourage these plants to focus on dry cooling. That's been largely successful and to give you an idea um, you know, uh, a wet cooling plant might use 300 gallons of water per kilowatt hour or kilowatt created. A uh, natural gas plant might use three to five gallons of water. It's, it's a huge difference. It's a difference between these plants asking for a consumptive use approval of six to eight million gallons a day, to, you know, six to eight million gallons a day, uh, to requests mainly between 300 and 500,000 gallons a day. It is... Um, for water usage, it's a game changer as well. Uh, and, and there's a couple pressures. It's not just the, the fact that the gas is available. That is one of the, the pressures. The other is, you know, a lot of the older, bigger plants have coal-fired components, and they've been under an incredible amount of pressure through things that have nothing to do with natural gas development and more to do with, uh, you know, the, the clean air and the, the, you know, clean power plan push with US EPA. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some would also say that uh, the advent of fracking and driving the price down has also contributed to coal's demise um, in, in, in power generation. Yeah, are there any other issues about the about the commission or the basin and water use uh, within your jurisdiction that I haven't really covered uh, with you here today? of it. I mean, the, the two things we're concerned about are both the consumptive use of water and make sure that's mitigated for, and then where they're getting the water. So where are they withdrawing the water? And I, I think that, 
the implementation of our program, including updating the low flow protection policy, was, was probably key in mitigating a lot of what you would expect to be uh, the large environmental impacts. The other one thing I didn't mention about the low flow protection policy is um, the larger the water body, the less chance you will have to be put on pass-by. So what it had, I think, the, uh, the, the effect was is that um, early on we were getting a lot of requests for withdrawals on what we would consider um, you know, what we call in our business ARC 1 and 2 streams. So that would be streams with a drainage area of 50 square miles or less, so smaller headwater streams. Uh, and that really shifted with the pass-by flow policy because it, you know, they could put a withdrawal on one of these smaller streams, but they might be on pass-by uh, 12 months out of the year and have a hard time getting the water they need. So it really pushed them to larger bodies of water, which the commission, as a policy, you want larger uses of the water to come from larger bodies of water because they're, those bodies are more resilient to having withdrawals and able to, you know, uh, and, and able to process them better than the smaller streams. Perfect. Um, so Jason, you've been, you've been fantastic today. I am uh, incredibly impressed by your knowledge. For those folks who want to find out more about you and the uh, commission, where can they go to find that information? <laughs> other than a small presence on LinkedIn, I don't do Facebook or any other social media, uh, you know, by, by design. Um, you know, but uh, for the commission, certainly uh, go to our website, www.srbc.net. And if you're interested in a remote water quality network, uh, I, you can go on. Uh, you can look at real-time data, uh, pick, a, pick a stream you're interested in, uh, and look at the, the data from that, you know, going back to 2010. We, we have that all on our website. Uh, you can look at the real-time numbers or past numbers, run sort of reports. You can also uh, go to our water resource portal that's on our website, and you can run some different queries, and it, have, it has an interactive uh, GIS-based uh, application. So you can look at a map, and if you want to look at all the consumptive use natural gas approvals, you can uh, sort that out and see where they all are. Um, you know, I will warn you, you will, probably, you will find that 75% of uh, our natural gas approvals occur in four counties uh, in the basin. Um, and that's the interesting part about that is their counties, that that's where the thickest part of the Marcella Shale is. Um, you know, so it's the most productive and those, those wells are more productive. But it's also an area that hasn't seen that kind of development. So when you talk about pipelines, um, you know, all that infrastructure also needs to be built. And I think that's where right now you're seeing a lot of the, the public concern is on the building of that infrastructure to take the gas uh, essentially to market. Got it. Got it. Well, again, Jason, thanks so much. You've been awesome. Really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. You betcha. Well, that was my interview with Jason Euler. Uh, fantastic guy. Fantastic guy. Uh, very knowledgeable, and if you didn't learn something about water use and fracking um, during that interview, then my hat's off to you because I I was blown away how well he knew the subject matter and some of the areas that that he was able to uh, expand upon. Um, it, it just a, just a fantastic, very knowledgeable guy, and I really appreciated his time. I hope you did too. Uh, you can find out more about the show, thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 97. I tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. You can tweet at me uh, using my handle, which is at DTM1993. Uh, on the show notes, feel free to leave a comment, 
You can email me at David at the water values. Uh, thanks so much guys. Really appreciate it. I thought, uh, this is this has been an absolutely fantastic episode. So much appreciation to Jason, much appreciation to Reese for Bluefield on tap. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your day. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to The Disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.